Before we start, we just wanted to say up front, thank you for listening. We've been creating UX Podcast now for eight years. For most of that time, the podcast has been produced and run without any external financial support. We decided a few years ago to stop accepting regular sponsorship, apart from event partnerships, in order to keep the podcast independent and free from the editorial pressure that can come with paid sponsorship. So if you find UX Podcast useful, perhaps even valuable, then we'd love you to be part of making sure UX Podcast continues to create fresh, relevant content that helps you grow as a designer. Please visit uxpodcast.com support and give as little or as much as you can. UX Podcast Episode 213. Hello, everybody, and welcome to UX Podcast, narrowcasting to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson and Per Axbom. With listeners in 186 countries from San Marino to Ethiopia. You used a word I haven't seen before, narrowcasting. Yeah. Well, you know, before you'd say broadcasting, but we're we're not kind of... Just shooting out our signals across the airwaves to the whole wide world, are we? It's not shortwave radio. We're a podcast that someone has to download across the internet to their device. But globally. Globally, but it's it's a very specific narrow audience. All these lovely UXers and digital um, workers out there that are listening to us. So I'm saying narrow casting. Uh, we may have to fight about this later because, I mean, broadcast shows also have narrow audiences, some of them. <clears throat> as, as as many thousands of people listen, Per, it's not it's not billions, no matter how I count it and twist the figures. Damn it! <laughs> Lindsay Aitchison is one of the leading experts behind NASA's effort to build a next generation spacesuit. We got the chance to talk to her at From Business to Buttons in Stockholm earlier this year. Lindsay began working full time with NASA back in 2006, and since 2013. She's held the position of manager of the Advanced Spacesuit Project. And right now, Lindsay is working within the Advanced Exploration Systems Division at NASA headquarters, where her team is working on sending humans back to the lunar surface and on to Mars. As a designer, when you when you look at this as like spacesuit design, you kind of straight away think, oh my god, my, my world's just really not complicated at all compared to that world. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about the the world of designing for spacesuits. You know, I've learned that it's really not that different from any other design problem, quite honestly. You have to lay out your concept of operations, so it defines what you're going to do from the launch of the crew until they come back home. And once you really lay out that sequence of events, you break it down into smaller and smaller bits and just focus on the design as it goes. So it's really kind of a straightforward process for a pretty big <laughs> big mm. design challenge. But it's really the same as anything else, the way you start it. Yeah. I suppose one thing that maybe varies from um, a lot of design work, that if, you, I mean, if you're working with, with, with digital design or a website and so on, then you maybe aren't faced with such... Um, well, the laws of physics as your, <laughs> as your criteria. I right. mean, they, that must add another dimension to the, the design work. Well, for us, it's pretty normal. I mean, the background that most of the people on our team were aerospace engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. Um, 
we're used to figuring out how to design machines mm. and so the physical interface of the machines. But what becomes more challenging for a lot of us is having to not do just a machine that does a job but have a machine do a job for a human. Mm. It becomes such an intimate part of what you are and what you're doing when you wear a spacesuit that that's really the challenge for most of our engineers is understanding how to interact with a human. And that goes from everything from test design to having it come back and just getting feedback from the user. How do we do that in a repeatable way that translates to a design change? that we need to make because it's not just somebody can say oh i feel like this one bearing position is keeping me from raising my arm over my head but the spacesuit is such a sensory experience it's almost overload when you're wearing that and if you don't understand as an engineer exactly how the suit is designed to move um you don't know for sure if that's what's really limiting somebody that's in it. Mm. You have to be able to guide them through and understand the questions to ask to see, is it really that thing that they think is poking them, mm. or is it something else? So it's how do you understand your hardware, how it feels, how it looks, how it should move, but also how it might be experienced by the astronaut that's mm. doing the test for you. Mm. I remember there was a, there was a, a television, television series the other year. It was, um, it was, applying, it was a, a show to, to apply to be an astronaut. Of a training program to be an astronaut, mm-hmm. um, and and I was r- really impressed. Was, Tim Peake was was part of the show as well at one point, um, and just this about astronauts, their ability to um, give detail and and um, explain things because uh, you know they learn scripts, I guess, because doing ex- explorations, mm-hmm. doing um, extra vehicular activities. Um, uh, that's hard to say. Um, you need to learn every single detail. Mm-hmm. How does that impact? You're, like you say, getting feedback and research. Do you, do you have to work around that or work with it? We work with it mostly. So the spacesuit that we use now on the International Space Station, we first made the first iteration of that starting with the space shuttle program in the early 80s. Mm. And so the idea then is you were doing your spacewalks out of the big cargo bay of the space shuttle. Uh, and so that kind of limited what you were going to be asked to do and how you could do it just because it was relatively small. Um, taking that same design, we made a few upgrades when we have the International Space Station. And so it's a design that's been around for almost 40 years now. And so mostly when we're doing training in that spacesuit, um, we know so much about it. We have so much experience with it, with multiple, almost 100 different crew members have worn that spacesuit. And so it's really easy for us to translate comments and work with the crew and train them for those spacesuits. Where it becomes more interesting is when we talk about planetary spacesuit design. That's something that while our crew has worn spacesuits in space, since the Apollo program, none of our astronauts really know what it's like to walk in a spacesuit on another planet. Because in microgravity, you're not walking with your legs, and the tasks are very different. So how you move is very different. When they try on one of our planetary suit prototypes, getting the right feedback has been a challenge on both ends, <laughs> just trying to learn to communicate with each other and how to do that. And I think as we go forward, when we have our design finalized, we will do all of the testing to make sure it generally does a full suite of possible jobs because exploration is not going to be as scripted. On Space Station, they train the same tasks. Uh, if you're going to go on Space Station, you have an exact mission plan that for every one hour that you expect to spacewalk, you're going to do six hours of training that in the pool, the big giant pool where we have our Space Station mock-up. When you go on an exploration you don't know what you're going to find exactly. We're going to have some precursor missions, so you have a general idea that you can go to that area, look for rocks of this shape and size. But things may be different, so the crew is going to be asked to think on their feet, and it's going to be a lot more autonomous. And so designing a spacesuit to 
do that, to enable the crew to react to any situation, is going to be a real challenge, and it's going to be something new for both crew and engineers. I, I hadn't even considered how many different types of spacesuits there must be. So when you were explaining how, it, when, when you were moving, uh, moving around at the space station, and then when you're moving around on the moon, completely different situations. How many different spacesuits would you say there are? So uh, in actual flight use today, there are three now. Uh, so you have the Orlan spacesuit, which is the Russian version of the EVA spacewalking spacesuit. And then you have the ISS EMU, which is the U.S. version. And okay. then you have the Sokol suit, which is the launch suit that you wear when you're launching in the Soyuz from Russia. Right, yeah. And back when we had the space shuttle still, we had a separate launch garment that was called the ASIS suit. As we go forward and we're looking at uh, the Orion crew capsule, which is the next generation for U.S. spacesuits, you'll have a launch suit that's specific to that one. And as we bring on commercial partners SpaceX and Boeing to start sending crew to space station, each of those capsules has their own launch and reentry spacesuit that goes with it. Now, once you get beyond there... <laughs> We talk about actual surface exploration. We have a whole suite of prototypes. We've been prototyping uh, planetary exploration spacesuits since the Apollo missions. We never stopped, right? Okay. So you learn a little and you move on. Our ideal is to try to find a spacesuit design that would work for all of those destinations, which is a big challenge, something that works well for microgravity, but also for the surface of the moon and the surface of Mars. And so that is one of the areas of focus we have for our next generation spacesuit at NASA, is creating that one architecture that can do all of those jobs with just a few minor tweaks between each situation. And that's been a challenge because, again, there are so many operational differences, microgravity, to planetary, but we're learning that it's a lot more overlap than we expected by testing a planetary suit in those microgravity situations. How do you test that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's impossible, so I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're doing risk assessments and you assume that you can change things along the way depending on what happens. Yeah, so a lot of it is... If you think about your spacesuit, uh, kind of like a computer motherboard, where you want to upgrade the sound system when a new video card comes out, or I'm not very computer savvy, so I'm going to make myself real embarrassed here. But there are things. I know you swap them out when you want to upgrade the computer, right? If you do it yourself without having to buy a whole new computer every time. We want to make your spacesuit like that. So if we start with just the life support system, thinking about, okay, uh, right now on space station, we have... Uh, CO2 removal, so CO2, it's what you exhale, and it's not good to breathe it back in. It's not pure oxygen, so it's not great for humans. So we scrub that out. But the way that we do that on space station, it's a big piece of hardware that at the end of your spacewalk, you actually have to bake it in an oven to get all the CO2 that was captured out of it so you can reuse it. So instead of doing that, we want to use something that is regenerable by itself. It just is a swing bed, so it adsorbs and desorbs with the vacuum environment, which is great. But once you get to Mars, can we really use that same technology? Because Mars isn't a pure vacuum. Mm -hmm. And it's also a CO2-rich environment. So just having it desorbed to the environment will be harder. So we're going to have to find a way, if we want to use that same technology, to push the gas through and make sure it goes out because it won't do it naturally. But having a way that we can just plug and play those systems will make it much easier to upgrade as you go. Same thing with even just the basic electronics that are in there. Um, we may not have a uh, heads-up display in our first version. But we know when we get to Mars, we need a lot more crew autonomy. So having something that just displays on the inside of your helmet or displays on a small fabric display on your gloves or something, we want to have that in the future. So making sure that we leave the space in terms of physical, like real estate, but also battery power and all of that, make it available. So that as you go, not an entirely new suit, just little components that can plug and play. Right, yeah, so making it modular 
is is basically makes life easier for the astronauts when they're going to be uh, unreachable exactly during a long mission and i guess as well it's 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 more cost efficient to replace a module than i mean how much does a suit cost we're into millions of dollars aren't we millions of dollars yeah yeah i mean that's that's something you don't want to kind of like just put back in the peg and replace <laughs> with a new one switching out an arm yeah i, I can understand the yeah. the drivers with that one you say you do, you do all these prototypes, all mm-hmm. prototypes all the time, but yet the spacesuits we're seeing, American astronauts were anywhere, based on the ones from the 80s or 70s. Mm-hmm. So you don't kind of like just throw them out and start again. No, even those spacesuits. So it looks the same to everybody else when it's all covered up in its white garment, mm. the micrometeor protection garment, that big white thing you see. But if you undress the suit, as we like to say, and you see the naked spacesuit and all the bits and pieces inside. We've actually made a lot of small upgrades over time, even with that suit. Um, we changed the way that the different, uh, like the elbows connect to the shoulders, make that easier. Before, they were laced in, mm. like physically with thread and needles laced together. Whereas now, it's more like a pickle jar. You unscrew it on one end, and then you can pop in another segment. So when you're on the space station, you can just swap out sizes easily. You don't have to send it home to get fixed. Mm. Um, we've changed out the materials to make them longer life. Um, radiation destroys fabric pretty quickly and so as materials have gotten better over time we're able to make just small adjustments so the suit really has evolved as the space station has evolved too yeah so even though you do kind of completely new prototypes that yeah. perhaps are radically different you you still it, use the information you learned from that test to iterate the exactly the kind of base product i suppose you yes could say. so right. we do have a base product line which is the iss emu but as we're learning things in our prototyping lab if we just focus on one component like the elbow or the boots uh if we make some materials advantage advantages it advances uh for just that one segment because we're trying to solve a problem for mars and we realize oh hey that that would work really well today too mm. it's easy to swap out between the two and make those upgrades as you go because there is so much overlap uh, yeah. at the end of the day, especially between the moon and space station. Yeah. I think sometimes we're, because we work with digital almost entirely, then sometimes I think we're too quick to start again f- from from scratch yeah. rather than kind of you know, prototyping, allowing ourselves to be very wild and crazy with the prototyping, <laughs> but then taking then a, a module it, from it. Making the original product better. Yeah. yeah. Really That's a sustainable way of working. Really. Yeah. It sounds more sustainable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We still try to step out out of the box sometimes and say, okay, we've been doing an iterative design approach. Yeah. And by doing that, are we missing something that would be a giant radical change that mm. would make everything better? So every now and then we do step back, and we work with our uh, academic partners primarily when we do things like that. And so Massachusetts Institute of Technology, they have been approaching spacesuits in a very different way. Uh, they've been building off of the space activity des- suit design from Paul Webb, which is mechanical counterpressure. Instead of having a gas, gas pressurized suit with bearings to help you have mobility, it's just a super skin-tight suit that's applying pressure just mechanically as opposed to having gas. And so we look at that. We know back in the 70s it wasn't really ready yet. It wasn't a viable option at that time. But it's like, okay, let's look at this again. Mm. Is there something that's changed in the materials available today that makes this a better option that we should be pursuing? And so we've worked with them. We do small prototypes with them and see how much further, how can we push this? And so it's still not quite ready yet, but we keep coming back every now and then to say, have things changed? <laughs> Has the market changed? And making sure we're not missing something. So earlier today, Jake Knapp was on stage. I don't know if you had time to see him, but he was talking about one-week sprints. <laughs> Is there such a thing in your in your world? Uh not to date. No. <laughs> I mean, mostly just because this is a garment 
that even in our labs, because we're working in a pressurized environment, if we don't take all the proper precautions, you can seriously in, injure someone. Right. Uh, and so it does require, if you're going to do a full-up suited test, to make sure that it is precision as you go through that. It's not always a quick and dirty thing. We have done a 3D pr- printing of certain components of the suit, and that is rapid development. Not usually a week. We're pretty proud of ourselves when it's just a month. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even for us, that's a big deal just because of how many uh, measurements we take from the body because we know we're trying to fit a target population. And so we do the 3D body scans and we build it all up in CAD. And 3D printing itself is not super fast mm-hmm. when you're talking human-sized portions. <laughs> and then you have to actually stitch them together because nothing is quite available. It'll do that one go all the way through. So there's a little bit of extra work when you're doing it for a human. But we do have some more rapid, but definitely not a one-week sprint that we have to date. Given, given the, um, the, the risks of, of even doing testing, like you say, what kind of routines do you have? Or what do you, what, how do you test your tests? Or if you've got a design, what kind of checks do you have to do to, to even know that it's safe enough to go to prototype stage? A lot of it starts with we have some basic set requirements in terms of the strength of the materials when you're looking at... Uh, Before you put a human in it, we do burst tests to make sure that if we're going to operate at a specific pressure, that it can withstand a safety margin well above that pressure. You blow it up, basically. You you fill it full of air. Yep. Air or water. water. Either one, depending on where we're doing the testing, to say the strength of the materials, the way that you've done those seams, Mm. are going to last. And Mm. that's one of the things. It's not just the base material, but it's also how you join the two pieces of fabric together and make sure that those hold well above what you expect to actually be testing at. Uh, The same thing goes with how you interface the soft goods to the hard goods. That transition tends to be very difficult for fabrics. Mm. And so, again, going through there and making sure that the strength of materials from your toes through your helmet, even if you're only changing one small thing, can have a a ripple effect all the way through in terms of the load path. Mm. Also, it's how do you choose materials that you know aren't going to off-gas? And so off-gassing is a big problem when you go to reduce pressure especially. Um, Chemicals leach out of uh, the materials sometimes. Oh, right, so some, some part of what it's made of decides it's not going to be there anymore and release yeah. itself. It's that new car smell. Right, yeah. That's really the off-gassing of chemicals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. if you do that inside of your spacesuit, you don't want that new spacesuit smell because no. that's actually going to be toxic to people at that sort of level when you're breathing it in. New, s- new spacesuit smell. Yeah. <laughs> I could bottle that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we try to get that out first and make sure that once you're in that enclosed environment, it's a very small space, that everything that we've chosen is going to be safe. The other, the biggest thing that we think about, though, are materials compatibility for an oxygen environment. So we operate with 100% oxygen inside of our spacesuits. The prototypes, we start with just breathing air because it's safer, but ultimately you go to oxygen. Mm-hmm. And having 100% oxygen makes everything a lot more flammable. So it's a matter of whatever you're putting near that oxygen environment, uh, we keep very low power sources inside of the spacesuit, mm-hmm. and so we limit any sources of ignition and then try to choose materials that are going to be uh, the least flammable within that environment. And so materials that don't want to react with oxygen, or at least right. have more of a problem doing it. Right. I mean, if you look back at the Apollo 1 disaster that mm-hmm. happened, part of that was because the entire capsule was at 100% oxygen, so it was just really uh, a flame Flames want that. Oxygen Mm -hmm. is the fuel for flames. And so we learned a lot from that, and especially how we pick materials for our spacesuits is partly from that experience. Mm -hmm. One one thing I I realized talking to you is the the, the knowledge inheritance, so how you pass knowledge 
um, down generations in NASA must be must be an important part of your your training because you're you're saying things using we and and talking about events <laughs> that happened um, you know around about the time I was born and right. I guess you know before you were born probably as well that, that must yeah. be very efficient process. It is a very small community, both within NASA and the broader EVA mm. community across industry and academia. We're a pretty small community, so we do share a lot of the lessons learned both directly through uh, you know, workshops annually where we sit there and talk about where have we made progress, what do we still need to do. So there's that. But even within the community in which uh, I grew up in spacesuit engineering, it is so small that basically the mentor, when I first started, he started working at NASA in 19... 19- 52, when it was NACA, so mm. before it became actually NASA. Oh, really? cool. And uh, he has worked on every spacesuit project since Gemini. And so the lessons that he learned, he lets us fail because mm. part of learning is failing. But once you do, he's like, okay, so this also happened to us back in Apollo. And here's what we learned then. Mm. Is it different now? Did you learn a different lesson or is it the same thing? And so we can really take that inherited knowledge and build upon it. And we do keep design data books so that if you want to reference something we've done in the past, we can look it up. And we're trying to do a better job of that because our teams are expanding and as space becomes a larger endeavor with more and more people involved, as we hope it will, we want to make that information available. So well, that's one of our challenges is figuring out how to take that corporate knowledge, if you will, and make sure that everybody can also use that so that we can move our designs forward as opposed to continually just like repeating the same yeah. stuff. And that does sound like a fantastic work culture because with that experience, you, some people maybe would say, we've tried that, don't try it again. But you're allowed to try it and see, did you learn the same thing or did you learn something else from failing? Exactly. Which is fantastic. Uh, you keep touching upon something that is different. You started by saying, so the design process really is quite similar across industries, but, uh, I mean, here lives are on the line. And you said something that resonated with me because I, I always say that, so, but it's not lives maybe that are on the line, but you always affect a lot of people with design. And you said something along the lines of, with everything that becomes helpful, there are consequences that must be dealt with. Can you just explain what, what you meant with that? One of the easiest examples for me is thinking about the Apollo spacesuits. And we look at those spacesuits, and it looks clunky. It looks like your astronauts are not particularly graceful. They're falling down all the time. You do the hammer dance is one of the ones we like to call where the crimper drops his hammer, and he spends time hopping to the side, hopping to the side, trying to pick that hammer up off the ground. It takes him five minutes. Mm. And so we're like, oh, we don't want to repeat that. That's hard on the crew. That's hard on your spacesuits. Let's do it better. So we added bearings throughout the hips, and now it gives you a very graceful way to open your hip. You can kneel down controlled, stand back up. It's very easy. But that added around 20 pounds of mass to put all of those bearings. And so it becomes not only a problem for just launching it there, but it also limits, now I can no longer wear that same suit on the rocket when I leave Earth. The Apollo suit I could wear when I left Earth because it was lightweight enough that if there were a problem on the ground, I can still unbuckle myself and walk away, right? But now my suit's too heavy to do that. So it's a consequence of that design. It makes it way better for this one use case, but I can no longer use it in the other. And so it's finding the compromise there. Thank you so much for joining us. It was so, so much fun. My pleasure. Thank you. At the very beginning, or towards the beginning anyway, of our chat with Lindsay, um, I say to her... Um, that you know, she's her design world um, is constrained by the laws of physics, because uh, ours isn't, of course. Exactly, <laughs> reflecting back is kind of like, well, you know, you know, us, us people in digital design, you know, we're 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 transdimensional beings who, who clearly aren't, you know, restrained by these pesky laws of physics. Um, 
oh, not really um, quite what I meant. But yeah. um, um, you know, I, I think what I was trying to say there was, for us, the laws of physics are, are not normally a, a kind of upfront criteria. It's not like we 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 write it in you know in stories in Jira kind of thing. Oh yeah, remember uh, you remembered <laughs> to factor in the laws of physics. But also for her, the laws of <laughs> physics change. As well, which is interesting. So yeah, but that's well, why it matters. No, they, because they the, don't the change. change, Pa. They don't change. Oh, but you, mean, you know what I mean. The environment they, changes. Yes, the the ones yeah. that are applicable yeah. m- become more applicable in certain situations. Yeah. So gravity, for example. Yeah, I'd say for, it changes according to environment. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and well, these various mm. things change between planet to planet. I mean, how you walk yeah. on the moon is different to how you walk on the on Mars. Exactly. Um, you know, temperature and pressure, all these things, they've, they've, this, the environmental situation varies a lot within the laws of physics. But, right. you know, I mean, yeah, okay, a lot of this episode, there was a bit of a physics and chemistry lesson going on. Um, but I loved you know, it, yeah. I, I loved it, and I, lo- I love the kind of, you know, when design is design, mm. and we all have constraints. And, you know, what constraints are more um, relevant of, or, or critical from design project design project vary but you know the as lindy said in her opening answer you know it's it's a very similar design process to what we generally would use um, it really is i mean are, it, it really is and i i think we can always learn from each other uh, the way they design maybe is more relevant to the way we design as well there is there's stuff they're doing uh, like they they are having like you said uh, to me earlier quality assurance uh, you have to have that before you do any user testing. <laughs> oh, I mean, that fascinates me. That you know, we 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 um, push and highlight the the value of um, guerrilla testing or just getting out there. And mm. we've encouraged people over the years to like you know, you take a paper prototype or a, a clipboard and go out into a, a you know Starbucks or shopping center and just get some mm. info, get some feedback. Mm. If they put the astronaut into the uh, a spacesuit, that's not quite safe enough they can they can die um you know things can um, you know blow up explode mm. set on fire you know there's, there's a lot of stuff that generally for us we don't really need to think about um now i'm thinking of them i mean if in the science sprints they would have to sit with small dolls and experiment with the different suits and, and see if they you can basically have a doll that would be their design sprint because well, yeah, <laughs> but but then but then you have to design the doll to make sure it can give you the data you need to test. Yes, you know, exactly. So, you, so you're, you're, you're still got... you're still stuck. You're still stuck with uh, having to do it in the correct way in the end. Yeah. Mm. So you've you've got to back up to make sure mm. you've got all the, mm. the right components in place to make sure it's it's a safe test, mm. a safe test that gives reliable data. Um, I, I do have to mention now because this was sort of. I am not. I know you love uh, following NASA and everything that's going on and and. But when we're talking, going to talk about spacesuits, I, I, in my head, of course, and I think a lot of people have this. In my head, of course, I have the white spacesuit that you see in front of you in all the pictures and mm. in all the films. But she actually did mention she called that she called the big white thing. The big yeah. white thing is like the outside layer. There's so much going on underneath that white layer. Yeah, I mean that's because Lindsay works with the yeah. the, um, um, the 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 spacesuits that you take outside into space. Exactly, um, and they are 
pretty much always white because of course they have to be white to reflect mm. the sun mm. um and that's just the outside layer all the this is like i don't know how many layers but mm. you know you're into double digits of layers of material mm. under that white surface that do other things um not only keep you know keep the the, the atmosphere inside the spacesuit but also um stop things like um or protect them from particles of dust ripping through the spacesuit and killing the oh, astronaut. Oh, yeah, that was awful to hear. Oh. I mean, there's all oh. that kind of stuff mm. that they have to think about. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, we think sometimes about, and some spacesuits are not white. You've got the blue ones that it was, I think, in the Apollo missions, that mm. they didn't have spaceships. They sat in, uh, was, it, was it orange? you got orange and blue, depending when they're, when they're launching. They've got things that aren't really spacesuits. They're just kind of jumpsuits. More like yeah. kind of fight, fighter pilots. And I yeah, think she was talking the... about different suits for different uh, parts of the journey as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and different ones that are in use at the moment. Yeah. Um, I've got a, I'll put a link in that to the show notes, to the mm. ones that are currently in use. Uh, mm. I think it's like four or something I think she mentioned. And that did make me think of how, how that was a great metaphor for me, at least, with the complexity. You see the outer, outer layer, you see the white outer layer, and that is the website. But for that website or our digital service to work, there's so much complexity going on underneath that we need also be, to be taking into account probably uh, more so than most designers do, actually. Yeah, and also that mm. you know, you've got a user, the space, the astronaut, mm. inside the product, the spacesuit, but mm. behind that, there's hundreds of people involved. Yeah. And you know, that's how it is in design situations. There's mm. hundreds of people involved behind mm. the scenes. And also that it might look, it looks like a spacesuit. It looks, you know, from from being a, you know a kindergarten or primary school or whatever you can you can draw a spaceman mm. you know you have a very clear idea of what a spaceman looks like so you kind of take it for granted and we get that i think a lot that people say well you know that's obvious mm. and uh, and the <laughs> things that we've we've suggested mm. and and it's very easy to dismiss the design process you know the the the, the research the the hypotheses the 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 data collection the confirmation that our guess that maybe seems very obvious actually is true and applicable in the design situation for the problem that we're we're facing. Exactly. Well, I I, I was reflecting as well on how um, Lindsay mentioned the the size of their community, and how it's a very small community, um, and and also of course they have direct access to their their end users. Um, but it, it made me think about the work we do within Enterprise UX or work with expert users. Um, and and how how different that is maybe to some of the kind of um, product websites or, or public websites are very very broad I suppose to narrow audiences. Um, so you're saying I mean you can go and talk to your users uh, any time of day really and, and and get some feedback on something. Yeah, I mean also but also uh, so I think about that connection to mm. to the work with 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 that kind of enterprise internal mm. systems and so on, um, but. Then I took the next step and thought, well, um, NASA doesn't have a kind of business model. They, she's, they're doing design to solve a problem. Mm. They're not doing design to enable a business model to, to, to make money from solving a problem. Mm. And, and thinking and reflecting about how that frees up the design process. I mean, okay, they've got a budget. Okay, they've, they've got maybe deadlines and so on. But but at the end of the day, they don't need to convince the astronaut to buy their suit. <laughs> That's true. But, but given, as as we were talking about in the interview as well, given the immense, immense costs, I was hugely impressed by the attention to actually reusing older spacesuits. That actually 
some of the Apollo suits were still in use, the way I understood it. That's yeah. amazing. So, I mean, obviously, they need they have some sort of constraints there. So, I, I agree, there's no business model, but there's there are other constraints. Well, isn't isn't that actually? Mm. I mean, we don't have Lindsay here now to ask, but isn't that actually connected to the fact that there's a, they have a huge amount of respect for the for the care and attention and effort that's gone into solving aspects of the problem earlier? I love that. I love that take on it. I hope that's true. So, so you yeah. know, you're not going to throw mm. away the elbow joint because they're acutely aware mm. that that elbow joint has been iterated and developed for forty or fifty years. Yeah. And, and you know, that ties into what I brought up about how I think we are really too quick to throw things away um, and to rebuild. So. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and to, okay, there's, there's a healthiness in rediscovering things. Mm. Uh, Lindsay herself points it out, the, the, the way she said about um, their mentors allowed them to fail. There's, there's a great deal of value in failing, but mm. I think you've got, to, you've got to fail with the right thing in order to learn rather than fail with things where the cost of going through that failure to learn is really too big. Yeah. Because when you've been in this industry for a while, you, you've everyone's been involved in a project where you, you scrap a tool to build something completely different. And in many, many cases, you actually, the old tool is never really completely scrapped because it can do something that the new tool can't do. So you're just adding complexity all the time instead of thinking about so we learned a lot about the needs of the users. How can we use the old tool to solve these problems uh, and build on that? Uh, and I would like to see that more, much, much more uh, in the design industry, that type of thinking. Yeah. And, and speaking of learning, I mean, this, it, it blew my mind the kind of respect that her mentor had for her when she was allowed to fail uh, time and time again. Because he, he knew probably what would happen uh, but it was more like he was also curious about would that happen again. Uh, in many cases in organizations, you have people who have worked there a long time and have said, we tried that, so you, no need to try it again. Hmm. Here is obviously an, a learning environment where everybody is allowed to fail at their own pace, which is fantastic to hear. Hmm. I know that um, hmm. just the, the story, story to do with mentoring and, and knowledge transfer hmm. That probably is is the story I've used most um, during this spring after oh nice <laughs> hearing Lindsay because it's um, I think there's a lot to be mm. to be learned from mm. I mean it comes up all the time for us kind of like how do we transfer mm. knowledge between us how do we how do we work sustainably how do we document mm. I mean none of us like documentation you know developers love documentation um, yeah, so so that whole thing about what do you do to um, to to maintain or to keep hold of that value you've created yeah. through knowledge um oh yeah that really um, shows how important it is to actually have people stay on for for a while with your company i mean i i have clients where i'm one of the people who has worked there the longest which is kind of blows my mind sometimes so i'm sort of a senior but i'm a consultant and an advisor mm. uh, but the documentation as you're saying it's not there the best thing for them would be to invest in me spending more time documenting yeah, and, and I think that's that's the point. It's it's not necessarily the length of time you've been there that's mm. that's critical there. Mm. It's it's I think um um a culture of um continuous handover. Mm. I mean we, we know that um um developers find great value in pair programming. And I don't mean programming with you. I mean as in sitting 
<laughs> sitting together um, in twos and, um, and and programming, you know, as a, as a mini team. And, uh, that's, um, go- that's going on my CV. I'm an expert in pair programming. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we, um, you know, so 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 that whole thing about kind of constantly handing yeah. over knowledge, um, not just when you're at the end of a project, not just kind of like when you quit your job or mm. change change job. You know, something needs to be done every single um i don't know, sprint week month um you know solution whatever um because then it it reduces it increases the the lifetime of the knowledge um it, it makes it more accessible mm. um and and stops it from dying yeah and vanishing i'm going to give, give a word of advice there that i've given before on the show but that was a long time ago i think um doing video recordings of uh, sprint demos has been immensely useful in a lot of projects I've worked in, where you actually record all the sprint demos, especially in larger projects. Every third week, you record a half-hour demo uh, of the product, explaining all the things that have been done and why during that sprint. Uh, and, and people who have come in and out of, uh, of the project have been able to watch those films and get up to speed really fast. So actually, that way of documenting is, is something that I really recommend. Yeah, and that is excellent advice. And also now, I think some of the um, some of the automated tools for creating transcripts have come long enough and, and far enough so that you can actually get a pretty searchable and good transcript from those video sessions um, at quite low cost. Ooh, excellent point. Yes. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already. Our entire collection of episodes is available on Spotify and on the website. And if you want the suggestion of what to listen to next, then it seems quite fitting to go all the way back to episode 25, which was in 2012, uh, when we talked to um, uh, Nathan Shedroff and and Christopher um, Nassel about interaction design lessons from science fiction. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. not going to do a knock knock joke today for you what oh, it's still a joke it's all right are you ready i'm ready okay what do you call a robot that always takes the longest route uh, i don't know r2 detour <laughs> <laughs> oh no